Section 10 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Fred DeBerardinus. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1B, Section 10, Chapter 13, Part 2. But the corruption of the judges, by which the fountains of justice were poisoned, seemed of still more dangerous consequence. Edward, in order to remedy this prevailing abuse, summoned a parliament and brought the judges to a trial, where all of them, except two, who were clergymen, were convicted of this flagrant iniquity, were fined and deposed. The amount of the fines levied upon them is alone a sufficient proof of their guilt, being above one hundred thousand marks, an immense sum in those days, and sufficient to defray the charges of an expensive war between two great kingdoms. The king afterwards made all the new judges swear that they would take no bribes, but his expedient of deposing and fining the old ones was the more effectual remedy. We now come to give an account of the state of affairs in Scotland, which gave rise to the most interesting transactions of this reign, and of some of the subsequent. Though the intercourse of that kingdom with England, either in peace or war, had hitherto produced so few events of moment, that, to avoid tediousness, we have omitted many of them, and have been very concise in relating the rest. If the Scots had, before this period, any real history worthy of the name, except what they glean from scattered passages in the English historians, those events, however minute, yet being the only foreign transactions of the nation, might deserve a place in it. Though the government of Scotland had been continually exposed to those factions and convulsions which are incident to all barbarous and to many civilized nations, and though the successions of their kings, the only part of their history which deserves any credit, had often been disordered by irregularities and usurpations, the true heir of the royal family had still in the end prevailed, and Alexander III, who had espoused the sister of Edward, probably inherited, after a period of about eight hundred years, and through a succession of males, the scepter of all the Scottish princes who had governed the nation since its first establishment in the island. This prince died in 1286 by a fall from his horse at Kinghorn, without leaving any male issue, and without any descendant except Margaret, born of Eric, king of Norway, and of Margaret, daughter of the Scottish monarch. This princess, commonly called the Maid of Norway, though a female, and an infant, and a foreigner, yet being the lawful heir of the kingdom, had, through her grandfather's care, been recognized successor by the states of Scotland, and on Alexander's death the dispositions which had previously made against that event appeared so just and prudent that no disorders as might naturally be apprehended ensued in the kingdom. Margaret was acknowledged Queen of Scotland. Five guardians, the bishops of St. Andrews and Glasgow, the earls of Fife and Buchan, and James, steward of Scotland, entered peaceably upon the administration, and the infant princess, under the protection of Edward, her great-uncle, and Eric, her father, who exerted themselves on this occasion, seemed firmly seated on the throne of Scotland. The English monarch was naturally led to build mighty projects on this incident, and having lately, by force of arms, brought Wales under subjection, he attempted, by the marriage of Margaret with his eldest son, Edward, to unite the whole island into one monarchy, and thereby to give it security, both against domestic convulsions and foreign invasions. The amity which had of late prevailed between the two nations, 
and which, even in former times, had never been interrupted by any violent wars or injuries, facilitated extremely the execution of this project, so favorable to the happiness and grandeur of both kingdoms, and the states of Scotland readily gave their assent to the English proposals, and even agreed that their young sovereign should be educated in the court of Edward. Anxious, however, for the liberty and independency of their country, they took care to stipulate very equitable conditions, ere they entrusted themselves into the hands of so great and so ambitious a monarch. It was agreed that they should enjoy all their ancient laws, liberties, and customs, that in case young Edward and Margaret should die without issue, the crown of Scotland should revert to the next heir, and should be inherited by him free and independent that the military tenants of the crown should never be obliged to go out of Scotland in order to do homage to the sovereign of the United Kingdoms, nor the chapters of cathedral, collegiate or conventual churches in order to make elections, that the parliaments summoned for Scottish affairs should always be held within the bounds of that kingdom, and that Edward should bind himself under the penalty of 100,000 marks payable to the Pope for the use of the holy wars to observe all these articles. It is not easy to conceive that two nations could have treated more on a footing of equality than Scotland and England maintained during the whole course of this transaction, and though Edward gave his assent to the article concerning the future independency of the Scottish crown with a saving of his former rights, this reserve gave no alarm to the nobility of Scotland, both because these rights, having hitherto been little heard or had occasioned no disturbance, and because the Scots had so near a prospect of seeing them entirely absorbed in the rights of their sovereignty. But this project, so happily formed and so amicably conducted, failed of success by the sudden death of the Norwegian princess, who expired on her passage to Scotland, and left a very dismal prospect to the kingdom. Though disorders were for the present obviated by the authority of the regency formerly established, the succession itself of the crown was now become an object of dispute, and the regents could not expect that a controversy, which is not usually decided by reason and argument alone, would be peaceably settled by them, or even by the states of the kingdom, amidst so many powerful pretenders. The posterity of William, King of Scotland, the prince taken prisoner by Henry II, being all extinct by the death of Margaret of Norway, the right to the crown devolved on the issue of David, Earl of Huntington, brother to William, whose male line being also extinct, left the succession open to the posterity of his daughters. The Earl of Huntington had three daughters, Margaret, married to Alan, Lord of Galloway, Isabella, wife of Robert Bruce, or Bruce Lord of Annandale, and Adama, who espoused Henry, Lord Hastings. Margaret, the eldest of the sisters, left one daughter, Devergilda, married to John Balliol, by whom she had a son of the same name, one of the present competitors for the crown. Isabella II bore a son, Robert Bruce, who was now alive, and who also insisted on his claim. Adama III left a son, John Hastings, who pretended that the Kingdom of Scotland, like many other inheritances, was divisible among the three daughters of the Earl of Huntington, and that he, in right of his mother, had a title to a third of it. Balliol and Bruce united against Hastings in maintaining that the Kingdom was indivisible, but each of them, supported by plausible reasons, asserted the preference of his own title. Balliol was sprung from the elder branch. Bruce was one degree nearer the common stock. If the principle of representation was regarded, the former had the better claim. If propinquity was considered, the latter was entitled to the preference. The sentiments of men were divided. 
All the nobility had taken part on one side or the other. The people followed implicitly their leaders. The two claimants themselves had great power and numerous retainers in Scotland. And it is no wonder that, among a rude people, more accustomed to arms than inured to laws, a controversy of this nature, which could not be decided by any former precedent among them, and which is capable of exciting commotions in the most legal and best established governments, should threaten the state with the most fatal convulsions. Each century has its peculiar mode in conducting business, and men, guided more by custom than by reason, follow without inquiry the manners which are prevalent in their own time. The practice of that age in controversies between states and princes seems to have been to choose a foreign prince as an equal arbiter by whom the question was decided, and whose sentence prevented those dismal confusions and disorders, inseparable at all times from war, but which were multiplied a hundredfold, and dispersed into every corner by the nature of the feudal governments. It was thus that the English king and barons, in the preceding reign, had endeavored to compose their dissensions by a reference to the king of France and the celebrated integrity of that monarch had prevented all the bad effects which might naturally have been dreaded from so perilous an expedient. It was thus that the kings of France and Aragon, and afterwards other princes, had submitted their controversy to Edward's judgment, and the remoteness of their states, the great power of the princes, and the little interest which he had on either side, had induced him to acquit himself with honor in his decisions. The Parliament of Scotland, therefore, threatened with a furious civil war, and allured by the great reputation of the English monarch, as well by the present amicable correspondence between the kingdoms, agreed in making a reference to Edward. And Fraser, Bishop of St. Andrews, with other deputies, was sent to notify him their resolution, and to claim his good offices in the present dangers to which they were exposed. His inclination, they flattered themselves, led him to prevent their dissensions, and to interpose with a power which none of the competitors would dare to withstand. When this expedient was proposed by one party, the other deemed it dangerous to object to it. Indifferent persons thought that the imminent perils of a civil war would thereby be prevented, and no one reflected on the ambitious character of Edward, and the almost certain ruin which must attend a small state divided by faction, when it thus implicitly submits itself to the will of so powerful and encroaching a neighbor. The temptation was too strong for the virtue of the English monarch to resist. He purposed to lay hold of the present favorable opportunity, and if not to create, at least to revive, his claim of a feudal superiority over Scotland, a claim which had hitherto lain in the deepest obscurity, and which, if ever it had been an object of attention, or had been so much as suspected, would have effectually prevented the Scottish barons from choosing him for an umpire. He well knew that, if this pretension were once submitted to, as it seemed difficult in the present situation of Scotland to oppose it, the absolute sovereignty of that kingdom, which had been the case with Wales, would soon follow, and that one great vassal cooped up in an island with his liege lord, without resource from foreign powers, without aid from any fellow vassals, could not long maintain his dominions against the efforts of a mighty kingdom, assisted by all the cavils which the feudal law afforded his superior against him. In pursuit of this great object, very advantageous to England, perhaps in the end no less beneficial to Scotland, but extremely unjust and iniquitous in itself, Edward busied himself in searching for proofs of his pretended superiority. 
and instead of looking into his own archives, which, if his claim had been real, must have afforded him numerous records on the homages done by the Scottish princes, and could alone yield him any authentic testimony, he made all the monasteries be ransacked for old chronicles and histories written by Englishmen, and he collected all the passages which seemed anywise to favor his pretensions. Yet even in this method of proceeding, which must have discovered to himself the injustice of his claim, he was far from being fortunate. He began his proofs from the time of Edward the Elder, and continued them through all the subsequent Saxon and Norman times, but produced nothing to his purpose. The whole amount of his authorities during the Saxon period, when stripped of the bombast and inaccurate style of the monkish historians, is that the Scots had sometimes been defeated by the English, had received peace on disadvantageous terms, had made submissions to the English monarch, and had even perhaps fallen into some dependence on a power which was so much superior, and which they had not at that time sufficient force to resist. His authorities from the Norman period were, if possible, still less conclusive. The historians indeed make frequent mention of homage done by the northern potentate, but not one of them says that it was done for his kingdom, and several of them declare in express terms that it was relative only to the fiefs which he enjoyed south of the Tweed. In the same manner as the king of England himself swore fealty to the French monarch for the fiefs which he inherited in France, and to such scandalous shifts was Edward reduced that he quotes a passage from Hoveden, where it is asserted that a Scottish king had done homage to England, but he purposely omits the latter part of the sentence, which expresses that this prince did homage for the lands which he held in England. When William, King of Scotland, was taken prisoner in the Battle of Allenwick, he was obliged, for the recovery of his liberty, to swear fealty to the victor for his crown itself. The deed was performed according to all the rites of the feudal law, the record was preserved in the English archives, and is mentioned by all the historians, but as it is the only one of the kind, and as historians speak of this superiority as a great acquisition gained by the fortunate arms of Henry the Second, there can remain no doubt that the Kingdom of Scotland was, in all former periods, entirely free and independent. Its subjection continued a very few years. King Richard, desirous, before his departure for the Holy Land, to conciliate the friendship of William, renounced that homage, which, he says in express terms, had been extorted by his father and he only retained the usual homage which had been done by the Scottish princes for the lands which they held in England. But though this transaction rendered the independence of Scotland still more unquestionable than if no fealty had ever been sworn to the English crown, the Scottish kings, apprised of the point aimed at by their powerful neighbors, seem for a long time to have retained some jealousy on that head, and in doing homage to have anxiously obviated all such pretensions. When William, in 1200, did homage to John at Lincoln, he was careful to insert a salvo for his royal dignity. When Alexander III sent assistance to his father-in-law, Henry III, during the wars of the barons, he previously procured an acknowledgment that this aid was granted only from friendship, not from any right claimed by the English monarch. And when that same prince was invited to assist at the coronation of this very Edward, he declined attendance till he received a like acknowledgment. But as all these reasons, and stronger could not be produced, were but a feeble rampart against the power of the sword, Edward, carrying with him a great army, which was to enforce his proofs, advanced to the frontiers, and invited the Scottish Parliament and all the competitors to attend him in the castle of Norham, 
a place situated on the southern banks of the Tweed, in order to determine the cause which had been referred to his arbitration. But though this deference seemed due to so great a monarch, and was no more than what his father and the English barons had, in similar circumstances, paid to Louis the Ninth, the king, careful not to give umbrage, and determined never to produce his claim till it should be too late to think of opposition, sent the Scottish barons an acknowledgment that, though at that time they passed the frontiers, this step should never be drawn into precedent, or afford the English kings a pretense for exacting a like submission in any future transaction. When the whole Scottish nation had thus unwarily put themselves in his power, Edward opened the conferences at Norham. He informed the Parliament, by the mouth of Roger le Brabancon, his chief justiciary, that he was come thither to determine the right among the competitors to their crown, that he was determined to do strict justice to all parties, and that he was entitled to this authority, not in virtue of the reference made to him, but in quality of superior and liege lord of the kingdom. He then produced his proofs of this superiority, which he pretended to be unquestionable, and he required of them an acknowledgment of it, a demand which was superfluous if the fact were already known and avowed, and which plainly betrays Edward's consciousness of his lame and defective title. The Scottish Parliament was astonished at so new a pretension, and answered only by their silence. But the king, in order to maintain the appearance of free and regular proceedings, desired them to remove into their own country to deliberate upon his claim, to examine his proofs, to propose all their objections, and to inform him of their resolution. And he appointed a plain at Upsettleton, on the northern banks of the Tweed, for that purpose. When the Scottish barons assembled in this place, though moved with indignation at the injustice of this unexpected claim, and at the fraud with which it had been conducted, they found themselves betrayed into a situation in which it was impossible for them to make any defense for the ancient liberty and independence of their country. The King of England, a martial and politic prince, at the head of a powerful army, lay at a very small distance, and was only separated from them by a river fordable in many places, though by a sudden flight some of them might themselves be able to make their escape. What hopes could they entertain of securing the kingdom against his future enterprises? Without a head, without union among themselves, attached all of them to different competitors, whose title they had rashly submitted to the decision of this foreign usurper, and who were thereby reduced to an absolute dependence upon him, they could only expect by resistance to entail on themselves and their posterity a more grievous and more destructive servitude. Yet, even in this desperate state of their affairs, the Scottish barons, as we learn from Walsingham, one of the best historians of that period, had the courage to reply that, till they had a king, they could take no resolution on so momentous a point. The Journal of King Edward says that they made no answer at all. That is, perhaps no particular answer or objection to Edward's claim. And by this solution it is possible to reconcile the journal with the historian. The king, therefore, interpreting their silence as consent, addressed himself to the several competitors. It is evident from the genealogy of the royal family of Scotland that there could only be two questions about the succession, that between Balliol and Bruce on the one hand, and Lord Hastings on the other, concerning the partition of the crown, and that between Balliol and Bruce themselves, concerning the preference of their respective titles, supposing the kingdom indivisible. Yet there appeared on this occasion no less than nine claimants besides. John Common or Cummin, Lord of Badenoch, Florence, Earl of Holland, 
Patrick Dunbar, Earl of March, William de Vesey, Robert de Pinckney, Nicholas de Solis, Patrick Goffley, Roger de Mandeville, Robert de Ross, not to mention the King of Norway, who claimed as heir to his daughter Margaret. Some of these competitors were descended from more remote branches of the royal family, others were even sprung from illegitimate children, and as none of them had the least pretense of right, it is natural to conjecture that Edward had secretly encouraged them to appear in the list of claimants, that he might sow the more division among the Scottish nobility, make the cause appear the more intricate, and be able to choose among a great number the most obsequious candidate. But he found them all equally obsequious on this occasion. Robert Bruce was the first that acknowledged Edward's right of superiority over Scotland, and he had so far foreseen the king's pretensions that even in his petition, where he set forth his claim to the crown, he had previously applied to him as liege lord of the kingdom, a step which was not taken by any of the other competitors. They all, however, with seeming willingness, made a like acknowledgment when required though Balliol, lest he should give offence to the Scottish nation, had taken care to be absent during the first days, and he was the last that recognised the king's title. End of section 10, chapter 13, part 2. Recording by Fred de Berardinus.